Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I'm your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto, and I want to acknowledge that the land I am settled on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. I give gratitude and thanks. I'm here with Chantal Martineau, who was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but raised in Montreal, Quebec. She's a journalist who writes about food, wine, spirits, and culture. Her writings have appeared in many magazines over the years, with her most recent being a poem for Understory magazine titled, It's Not My Childhood. And we will definitely check in about that later. Chantal has also written a book titled, How the Gringos Stole Tequila, and co-authored a book titled, Finding Mezcal. Chantal lives in New York State with her husband and two children, Welcome, Chantal. Thank you for having me. This probably feels weird. You are the one used to doing the interviewing. Yeah, I'm used to being in the in your chair. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's get started. In your article, Exploring Canada's Black History Trail for Road Trippers magazine, you said, my family isn't from Africville. We're from several of the other 52 Black communities in Nova Scotia but I've come here in search of a sense of history. What got you thinking about exploring and writing about Black history in Nova Scotia? What were you searching for? Well, I guess I was searching for answers, a sense of where I'm from, even though, you know, like I said, I'm not from Africville specifically, I'm from Halifax. So I've spent the last, whatever, 20 years working as a journalist, like you mentioned, and I write uh, mostly about food and foodways and farming and food culture. And I've spent most of that time writing about other people's cultures. I wrote two books about Mexico, and I've always found food to be a really great way to sort of delve into a culture. And if ever you've sat down for a meal at someone's house in another country, that's how you really get a feel for where you are. And I noticed quite late in my career that I had never done this for my own self, my own culture. So I just decided that it was time for me to turn the lens to my own, my own roots. Great. Can you share some of what you learned about the history of Black people in Nova Scotia? Sure. I mean, it's not enough because it's, it's all research I did on my own and, and stuff I'm learning now. I never learned anything about Canadian Black history in school. I don't know how different the curriculum is now, but I never learned about why Nova Scotia is where Black people originally lived in Canada. I had this kind of idea, but I didn't really know. <laughs> my, my mother didn't really tell me. She didn't seem to really know. You know, she was on one of these trips that I wrote about with me, and we were sort of discovering together. My grandparents never really explained to me why we're from Nova Scotia, how that happened. So I had this sort of loose idea about enslaved people escaping, and it wasn't 
I guess that accurate. What I've learned is that there were 52 different historically black communities in Nova Scotia. Most yeah. of them were founded by people who were brought to Canada, either against their will. Uh, they were black loyalists, so they ended up in Canada as a sort of reward for working with the British forces, or they did come as refugees, you know, through the War of 1812. But what I mostly learned is that we've been here since the beginning of Canada. Even when you hear people talking about Africville, it's not really mentioned that it was there since the beginning of Halifax. Right. <laughs> it's not just that it was like, oh, where, you know, a small number of Black people lived at the edge of the city. It came to be at the same time as Halifax came to be. So that's what I never learned. Have you learned more since from your grandfather or your mom about your own specific history about your people, about the family? Well, about, I would say maybe 10 or more years ago, my grandfather gave me this folder, just like a simple manila folder full of old writings and some were typewritten, some were handwritten and, you know, photocopied photographs. Right. And I received it sort of, you know, with a degree of surprise and like mm, bafflement, like what am I supposed to do with this? Of course, now looking back, I, I realized that this was quite a special gift that he gave me. This was all his research that he'd been doing for years and years and years on our family history. And you're familiar, obviously. With yes. <laughs> Full disclosure, we should say here that Chantal is my cousin. You know, my very first episode of I Am Black History, Leonard Paris was on the episode. And as it turns out, I didn't know this before I met Leonard, but Leonard's grandmother was my grandfather's sister. And now here I am with you, a cousin. And I know there's this myth that people think all Black people are related and all Black people know each other. And despite <laughs> what I just said, that's not true. But we do have large families. And so it's not unusual for mm -hmm. there to be lots of connection amongst us. And, you know, Black people came in certain places of the country and then spread out. It's not unusual also for us to be so spread out that we don't know the relatives and the connection. I mean, you and I know our connection because I've been in touch with your mom, but lots of times we don't know that connection. Right. Well, if you, if you keep interviewing folks from Nova Scotia, you might find <laughs> yeah. related to a couple more. That's for sure. <laughs> so it was a great treat that your grandfather gave you. Yeah, it was. I didn't do anything with this information right away. I sort of sat with it and read through it. But yeah, to answer your question, what I learned was my grandfather had told us stories over and over again, more like little bits of stories about where we were from or where our ancestors were from. Having it all in a folder, it was like putting together a puzzle right. to hear all his different stories. So I learned that on his father's side, which I think is the side that we might be related on? Yes. Okay. So his grandfather was married to the daughter of a French sea captain, and she was disowned by him and her family when she married my grandfather's grandfather, who was, I believe, likely descended from Black loyalists. On my grandfather's mother's side, his grandmother's 
father, his great-grandfather, I guess, had come over from Ireland. This was a story I'd been told. And I think that there, you know, there's a, a sense of pride that my grandfather told me this story, that his great-grandfather came over from Ireland as a free man. His mother, for some reason, my grandfather thinks she might have been Ethiopian and the father was Irish. So it was a mixed race man who came over of his own free will. And I might be wrong. It might be a great grandfather, a great, great grandfather. But in any case, I think that the sense of pride that my grandfather had when he repeated this story has to do with the fact that most of us don't know where we're from, you know, and that's Black people across the diaspora. That lineage was broken, the information of, on the lineage anyway. The stories were lost. We don't tend to know, we can't go very far back. Although I think compared to other Canadians, you know, I can go pretty far back. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's not easy to find the information. And people didn't actually talk a lot about it. No, it's almost like what, when you asked me what I found it when I went to do this research on this Africville story that I wrote, what I found was that I had a culture. My mother, even, not just me, I, I felt the same way growing up, but my mother always had the sense that like, well, we just didn't have a culture. I remember there, there used to be this sort of annual event where you'd bring in a dish from your culture and then there'd be like all the West Indian kids had like their dishes from their culture and then the Greek kids and the Italian kids. And my mom would always make apple crisp. <laughs> and apple is valley. And she's like, I don't know. I don't have a culture. Yeah, what I found is, wow, we, we do. This way that I know my family and my grandparents left Nova Scotia, they came here, but they came with this way of speaking, this way of cooking. And it took me until, you know, I wrote this, my 40s, to realize, oh, that's not just my grandparents. They're actually connected to a culture. Right. In the article that you wrote, The Underexplored Roots of Black cooking in Nova Scotia for Savoir magazine? Yeah, Savoir magazine. It brought back to me, like it did to your mother, so many childhood memories, fish cakes and smelts and baked beans. And I know that's not your experience, but what did it feel like to you to, when you visited Africville and North Preston, even Birchtown? What was that like for you emotionally? Birchtown is an impactful place. It's a museum and the I mean, what's left of what had been this village, this settlement. I've been to Nova Scotia a few times as an adult and visited these places with my family, my partner, my children, and then on another trip with my mother and my daughter. And I don't know, I guess it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's the feeling is one of being found. There's some regret associated with it because I wish I'd had the sense of belonging before, which I unfortunately didn't. And it's not just because there isn't a strong tradition of teaching Black, Black history in Canada, which there is not. Right. And it's not just that I grew up away from Nova Scotia, although that is part of it. You know, my grandmother was very young when they moved to Montreal and I've read that when people leave their home, they take usually one of two paths. Either they hang on to their culture really tightly 
and continue to only eat the same foods they used to eat and speak the same language they used to speak and associate with people that might be from there. I think my grandmother, of course, there were a few things she never stopped cooking, you know, but she took the other path, which is trying to just assimilate. I think that for all those reasons, we didn't grow up with a strong sense of where we were from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're not alone in that. Lots of people that has happened to. I want to dig a little bit deeper. Can you tell me, when did you first know that you were Black? I love that question. It's such a <laughs> startling one. Um, <laughs> I always knew, of course, that I was Black, but I'm mixed race. It always went along with this sort of caveat of, but I'm only half, right? or I'm not Black enough. I grew up in white spaces, so did my mother. And, you know, my grandfather was in the military. So military bases tend to be very, it's not that they're just that they're white spaces. It's just that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about race in the military. And I did grow up very much with this sense of, sure, you're Black, yes, but you're the same as everyone else. My parents raised us, and I think that my mother was raised with the same idea that you're just like everyone else. So let's not focus on the race part. So I knew I was black as a child, but yeah, there was always a a sense that I wasn't going to completely fit in with the black kids and I wasn't going to completely fit in with the white kids. So, Right. What was it like growing up in Quebec as a mixed race girl? Did you face racism? Did you have black teachers or were there other black students in your school or in your classes? Well, I have vague memories of living in Quebec City. We left Nova Scotia when I was a baby. Mm-hmm. We moved to Quebec City. My father's white French Canadian. And I lived there till I was seven years old. So I have very vague memories of Quebec City where my mother was the only black person around all the time. My mother told me that when she first met my father's family, he's one of seven children. Right. None of them had ever met a black person before. So they, like, I guess she was coming late at night and they all waited up till past midnight to be able to see her. And I do have this kind of vague sense of people looking at us a lot as a family, you know, (laughs) looking at my mom, then my dad, then the kids, my brother and me, we look very much alike. And then moving to the suburbs of Montreal was a very different experience. It was more diverse. The high school I went to used to boast, you know, there were 47 different languages spoken in the school. So there in the suburbs of Montreal, I certainly had Black teachers. My principal in high school was a Black man. And so did I face racism? I remember I was a very good student. In the gifted class, I hardly ever got in trouble. But one day I was sent to the principal's office with my friend, who also happened to be a Black girl. And we had gotten in trouble for making some inappropriate doodles on a binder. We both got that talk that I think a lot of Black kids get, that you have to be way better than everybody else. You can't ever get in trouble you have to be better than everyone. You can't be just as good as the white kids. You have to act better than everyone, which was, I'm sure, very well-meaning talk, but. It left you with what? What did it leave you with? 
I resented that I would have to do better than everyone else, but I also kind of was used to that attitude. Yeah, I guess I sort of took it in stride. I would say that it's a toxic concept, that concept of respectability. I grew up with it. My mother grew up with it. You know, my grandfather was raised with that. His mother was a school teacher and she instilled in him that there were good Black people and bad Black people. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing is generational. You pass that on. He passed those ideas on and those definitely filtered down. Now my mother and I are luckily, you know, we're, we're sort of becoming awokened at the same time <laughs> and, and hoping to repair some of the more toxic things right. we up with. What's been your experience of other Black people? You connected with Black people when you were in high school? Yes, in high school. Yeah. I mean, it was a very diverse school and we all, you know, I don't think that many of us thought very much about race at that time. I had a bully, which was <laughs> a, a little surprising to me at the time because, you know, I, was, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I was, you know, quite popular in high school and I was not someone who enjoyed <laughs> that popularity um, all the time. But I couldn't really imagine why this uh, girl decided to target me. One day I was just walking in the hallway. I didn't know her, but I started hearing someone calling half-breed, half-breed in the hallway. Oh my goodness. And I'm sure I would sympathize with her much more now, you know, but at the time I was in shock that someone would target me for this. I think it definitely was the beginning of worrying that I wasn't going to be accepted by the people that were supposed to be part of my culture. It definitely contributed to this anxiety I had that I was never going to be Black enough. Right. And after high school, I ended up, my last year in university, I did a student exchange in London and ended up staying in London, England, for a while, for a couple of years. And whole lot of different race dynamics there that I don't really want to get into but many of my friends there ended up being white and then I moved back here and ended up moving to New York working as a freelancer so I didn't really know anyone in New York and most of the people I ended up meeting through work were white all my editors were white I never had a black editor the work events I was going to I wrote a lot about wine and so I started going to a lot of professional wine tastings there weren't a lot of people of color in this space. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time I, I reached my 30s, I realized I didn't really have a whole lot of close Black friends. And mm-hmm. I was living away from home where I grew up. So I moved to a Black neighborhood for the first time in my life, living in Brooklyn. I said, you know what? I mean, mind you, it was a gentrifying Black neighborhood. I had discovered it, I guess, visiting a friend who lived there. And I remember calling my mom and saying to her, you're never going to guess what, I'm moving to a Black neighborhood for the first time ever. And it was just so exciting to me, the building I ended up living in, you know, my neighbor would tell me, girl, everyone in this building was Black 20 years ago, took me in, my upstairs neighbor ended up being this like famous Black artist. And it was really special, this feeling for the first time of belonging. Nice. And I would say that belonging It's something that is just so important to feel. We all belong. We're all from this earth, but it's not something that many of us really feel. 
it was special to me. Fantastic. Did you tell anybody about that half-breed comment that was made to you? I did. The girl was disciplined and I was sent to go speak to a Black teacher who was uh, not my teacher. He was married to a white woman and his children were mixed race. And he told me, some Black people are not going to like you. But if ever you want to talk about it, you can come talk to me. I don't know. I don't really want to focus on all the, you know, because it's just that that's the sort of thing that is hurtful because it feels like it's coming from your own people, you know, mm-hmm. because I could, you know, listen, kind of those called the N-word by mean white girls, that kind of thing just didn't hurt the same way. You know? Interesting. Interesting. In the article that you wrote for Road Tripper, you said that few Canadians, even Black Canadians, don't know much about the country's Black history. When the new $10 bill was released featuring the face of Viola Desmond, many people didn't know who she was. So much Black history in this country that is untold. What would you like to see happen? I mean, you're a mom, you have children. What would you like them to know about Black history? I live in the U.S. now where it's complicated because they do teach Black history, but it tends to be taught in this very narrow way. For example, this month only. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. But because there was a whole war fought over it, it is taught completely inadequately in the U.S. Whereas in Canada, again, I, I should say, I don't know what the curriculum looks like now. Why is there no mention of slavery in Canada in the history books? Why is there no mention of Black loyalists? Even the history that is taught about the Indigenous, you know, is incredibly narrow. You hear all these details. I remember learning all the details about the French and the English, you know, keep in mind, I went to school in Quebec, so French and the English, and then a tiny sliver of information about the Iroquois. So I would love to see history just completely uh, reformed in in terms of how it's taught in schools. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, what we're seeing, especially after, you know, last summer, is that it's crucial for everybody to have the correct information about how we got here. Yes. You know, it's not just to make Black people feel better. It's not just because it, it would be great for me to know where I'm from. Right. It's important for white kids in class to know where they're from and where everybody's, you know, how the country came to be. Right. What were you thinking and feeling as you watched the events of 2020 unfold, you know, the continued killing of Black and Indigenous men and women and all the anti-Black racism protests that happened around the world and in the middle of a pandemic? Last summer was incredibly overwhelming because of what we were all living through. I thought a lot about, I mean, you mentioned Haitian men in Montreal. Sure. I, I remember seeing Black boys beaten up by police. It was not an uncommon thing to witness growing up in Montreal. I remember being outside a club and a young man, I mean, I must have been, what, 18? Young man who was on the line with me got pulled out and the absolute shit kicked out of him by two policemen. And I was so angry. The next day, I very naively, stupidly, tried to call to make a complaint about this, tried to report it to somebody and right. ended up being patched through to 
basically the exact same people who did it and was told, you know, don't ever call back. We were there. Nothing was done wrong. Don't ever call back here. And I didn't, you know, I mean, I was young and I, I just hung up the phone and felt stupid and felt powerless. And so I thought of that last summer. I thought of how my brother has been stopped by police. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this idea that racism in Canada, it's softer, it's gentler, which can be just as insidious. Like my brother was stopped by police. He wasn't roughed up or anything. He was a, a man and a woman and they didn't really tell him why they were stopping him other than he looked like somebody that they were looking for and rolled up with full sirens and everything. And they asked him to lift his shirt up and the woman took pictures of his naked torso on her phone, laughing and giggling the whole time like it was cute. We don't know what the, happened to those pictures. We don't know what they were used for. We don't know even if his name was recorded anywhere. It's a real insidious kind of violence, a non-physical violence and emotional violence involved there. Maybe not even a year later, my mother was stopped by police driving through a neighborhood, the South Shore in the suburbs of Montreal. She was actually in the car with my grandfather who was coming from the Legion. And the police wanted to know what she was doing in that neighborhood. My mother, a 70-year-old mother and grandmother, what is that? And my grandfather you know, was so upset. He's 94. He isn't able to express himself very well anymore. And he just was sputtering with anger. And so all these things were things I thought of. For all of these years that I felt like, not just me, but people like me feel you're not Black enough. I mean, that's nonsense because we all suffer these incidents. You can almost pinpoint a day when everything changed last summer, right after the, the protests, after the murder of George Floyd. There was one day where it felt like the veil fell and I started getting calls from white colleagues to apologize. I was like, okay, I don't know how to feel about this. And then calls from Black friends. And people that I didn't really necessarily know, but very well, colleagues as well, from distant places, just reaching out in a sort of solidarity. And past editors asking me if they could promote my work. And I just thought, what is going to happen going forward? It's still my question. What is this going to mean for real? Right. You mentioned your recent foray into poetry. Can you talk about This Is Not My Childhood and where that came from? Yeah, it actually was from the trip to Halifax that I took with my mom. And it was inspired by an interview that I'd done with a woman who grew up in Africa. It was about the disconnection and the sort of search for connection, the search for your roots. Even all the research I'd done on Africville, if you Google Africville, all you're going to see are horrible stories of what was done at the very end and what was done throughout to the people who lived there and how they were treated as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And it's a sad story. But when I visited and I spoke to this woman in particular, you know, she painted just a completely different 
picture of a strong community and a tightly knit community and a place where you could just like run into any neighbor's house and where you had a, a sense of belonging. And she also talked so much about food, not prompted by me, just uh, that was what she remembered was like picking berries and picking apples and picking pears and being outside and going fishing and being in the water because she was still very young at the end of Africa, by the time they were raising it. Mm -hmm. She has a memory of not understanding why anyone would want to destroy that was her home. Mm -hmm. She really talks with joy and pride when she's talking about it. You really get that sense of joy. There's this uh, woman I follow on Instagram who makes these very cool wall hangings with little slogans on them. And joy is a form of resistance is one of them. <laughs> love that. Black joy as resistance. <laughs> love that. Love that. Talking about what we'd like to see in history books. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could see Black history taught in schools and in a realistic way so that people could understand that there was so much pain caused, but also that there was joy what would that look like to teach Black joy? Yeah. That's an amazing thought. Thank you, Chantal. I look forward to hearing more of your poetry, and I really look forward to reading your novel. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a real treat for me. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. If you want to check out Chantal's writing, go to www.chantalmartineau.com where you can also purchase her book, How the Gringos Stole Tequila. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our website, www.intheblackcanada.ca to listen to Black Canadians from across this country talk about their experiences and those of their ancestors of being Black in Canada. And if you have a story to tell, contact us through the website or at intheblackcanada at gmail.com. You can catch more episodes of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, wherever you get your podcasts. And this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts. <laughs>